I think we can we can start, no? Then we so so uh, welcome welcome uh, to our event today um, that will feature the transition report of the EBRD. I think it's called Equal Opportunities in an Unequal World. Um, so that sounds very ambitious uh, as a title, and so uh, I think the the whole discussion today is 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 really going to be very ambitious tackling one of the big issues of our times, namely inequality, and I guess with a, f a special focus on the countries that the EBRD is particularly interested in. So it's my great pleasure to welcome you today to our event. Um, we have a wonderful keynote speaker first, Sergei Guryev, um, the chief economist of the EBRD and uh, person responsible for the transition report, um, followed by a discussion that will be moderated by Jonathan Charles um, of the EBRD uh, himself. And so I very much look forward to the discussion. And Jonathan, you will also introduce, I think, the panelists afterwards. Uh, but now I think it's, uh, it's uh, all before even. So, so let, me, let me give you the floor, Jonathan. And thank you to all of you for coming today. Thank you very much indeed. And I really a big thank you as well to you for allowing us to uh, co-host uh, and uh, to be here in your wonderful meeting room here. Um, it is a great pleasure to be here today for the launch, uh, a Brussels launch of our transition report, Transition for All Equal Opportunities in an Unequal World. Uh, many of you may have seen it on your chair. Make a wonderful Christmas gift, by the way, for your loved ones. I'm sure beautifully wrapped. So uh, imagine, their yes, imagine their surprise as they open it. Um, <coughs> so uh, yeah, my name is Jonathan Charles. I'm uh, the EBRD's Managing Director for Communications. I'm a member of the bank's executive committee. It's a great pleasure in particular to be here in Brussels because we have a very close relationship with many of the entities which are here in this town, in particular, obviously, our EU member states, the European Commission. Uh, each year, we invest some 9 billion euros, roughly, in uh, changing lives, in developing the private sector, furthering transition uh, in a huge footprint which runs from Mongolia, right there on the Chinese border, all the way through to Morocco on the, uh, on the Atlantic Ocean, so across three continents. We do that alongside our donors. Uh, who include the European Commission, the European Union, our shareholders, of course. 60% of our shareholding is made up, more than 60% of uh, EU member states, plus the Commission, plus the EIB. So you can see how integrated we are uh, with our partners uh, here in Brussels and, and across the European Union. It is a, a very real partnership. Uh, as a development institution, we believe in integration, we believe in multilateral action, uh, and we are internationalists by nature and believe that is something worth defending in this world uh, in which we live, uh, the current uh, political and geopolitical world uh, which surrounds us. Uh, we believe in adapting globalization, not abandoning it. Uh, and I think there's no bigger issue uh, at the moment uh, than inclusion in that argument. Because presumably, if we all believe that uh, globalization and integration need to survive, then somehow, clearly, as everyone is now saying, inclusion is important. It has to be made more inclusive. Uh, and that's really at the heart of this transition report. We will be hearing from Sergey in a, in a moment, uh, the EBRD's chief economist, just to introduce our panel. Uh, starting at the far right, on my far right, is uh, not politically, I'm sure, is... Uh, <laughs> Uh, not definitely not, is Heather Graby, uh, Director of the Open Society European Policy Institute. Next to Heather is Katerina Matonova, the Deputy Director General of DG NIR at the European Commission, 
and over on my far left, not politically I'm sure either, is Zolt Davas, senior fellow in, here in the Bruegel Foundation. So thank you very much to all of them. Uh, after Sergei, we will be, be hearing from them. As I say, this is all about inclusion. And I'd like to give you a little flavor of what the EBRD is doing on inclusion, show you a short film uh, about financial inclusion and how we're reaching out to try to uh, make uh, the world more financially inclusive for women in Jordan. And this is a project that we do alongside some of our donors, uh, our money alongside donors, and actually we're expanding it across the whole of what we call the Semed region, so the southern Mediterranean region, Middle East, North Africa, where we operate, uh, with the help of uh, the EU, actually, and the European Commission, who will be joining with us on that. But let's uh, have a look, I think, at a film on what we're doing in Jordan.
So that's why inclusion matters on the ground. Uh, and we are rolling that out across the whole of the southern Mediterranean with the help of the European Commission and the EU uh, for the next stage of that. You will have a chance to ask your questions of Sergey and the panel, but now let's get, let's get a real view as to how transition lo uh, looks in terms of inclusion through the transition report, through Sergey's eyes. Sergey. Uh, thank you very much, Jonathan. Uh, thanks, uh, everybody, for coming. Uh, it, is, it is a great pleasure and honor to speak here. I'm not an outsider for Bruegel. I've actually been on the Scientific Council of Bruegel since 2008, in those years when Guntram was still not a director in prehistoric times. Uh, uh, I, uh, like, uh, I, I would like, indeed, to express gratitude to Bruegel for traditionally hosting uh, this event of what I'm going to talk about matters uh, not only to our countries, but also important for the Western countries as well, uh, inside the EU, but also outside the, of the EU, as, as Jonathan mentioned. So basically, this is the first report which is devoted to inequality and inclusion, and the reason for that is uh, we need to think about not just average numbers, not just GDP numbers, but we also need to think about distribution. And basically, this report uh, looks beyond averages, looks at uh, deciles, percentiles, terciles, quintiles, and so on. Um, it also looks at what people think. Uh, it uh, comes uh, uh, from, uh, uh, results come from a unique survey which we run now for the third time uh, in uh, 34 countries, um, uh, including uh, 29 post-communist countries, but also uh, Germany, Italy, Greece, uh, Cyprus, and Turkey. Uh, unfortunately, it's not run in uh, North African or Middle Eastern countries, uh, and uh, yet it, it does provide a lot, of, a lot of interesting insights. We ask people what they think, how they feel, and uh, we also measure their uh, uh, physical characteristics. You'll see why this is important. So um, the report consists of two separate chapters, and I will not be able to go through all of them. Um, I will only cover some, uh, and indeed, uh, I'm very happy that you have the hard copy so you can uh, enjoy reading the rest. Uh, the uh, most important part probably is indeed uh, to what extent transition has benefited everybody equally. And on average, transition countries have done pretty well in the last 25, 27 years, but the average does not describe the experience of majority. And uh, one of the takeaways from this report is this number of 44%, which is the number of people who can say that their incomes in the last 27 years have been growing faster than incomes of the rich countries. So the gap between transition countries, post-communist countries, and the rich countries has closed at, at least somewhat. On average, it's, it's true, but it's actually not true for the majority. Only for 44%, the gap between their incomes and incomes of uh, uh, G7 residents has declined in the last 27 years. For the majority, it's actually not the case. So um, let me start with, uh, with uh, this now famous elephant graph, the Milanovich elephant. The big elephant in the room is this graph, where, which you can recognize as, a, as an elephant, where C is a trunk and A is the top of the head. So basically, this graph uh, shows uh, uh, the growth of incomes in the 20 years from 88 to 2008. Uh, depending on your uh, uh, percentile in global income distribution. 
And here you see that uh, people at the at around point C, this is the global top 1%, top 5%, have actually benefited quite a bit from globalization and te technological progress. People on the bottom of the distribution, people living in poorer countries, have also seen uh, reasonably fast income growth. But it's not the case for people uh, in point B. Unlike people in point A, which are kind of Chinese middle class, Indian middle class, uh, people in other developing countries which have seen uh, high income growth, People in around point B have actually seen uh, more or less zero growth in real, real incomes. Now, a lot of people would interpret that as these are the Trump voters. These are the people who are uh, unhappy about globalization. These are people who vote against globalization and so on. It's actually not exactly true. Some of these people are Americans and Brits. But most of these people live either in Japan or in our countries. So these are the middle-income uh, people who, whose incomes, on average, have not grown that fast in the, in the, last, uh, the last 20 years. Just to show you uh, an example, for example, for the US, the elephant graph looks very different. So pretty much growth of uh, incomes for the US within the country, if you look at distribution of American incomes, you see that the top 10% have benefited from uh, the last 27 years a lot. Everybody else kind of average. For everybody else, incomes were growing at about 2%. For the top uh, 1%, they were growing on average 4%. And of course, for top 100 people, they've been growing even faster. So uh, the French graph doesn't look bad. The, uh, the uh, Italian graph has some problems. And actually, it's, uh, uh, if, you, if you want to look for a country like Italy in our region, that would be Ukraine. Um, uh, so a country where you actually have negative income growth in all parts of the income distribution. You don't have this inequality of having the elite Italians who benefited too much from globalization. Nobody <laughs> has benefited from the last quarter of century. UK, you actually have uh, the richest, um, uh, richest uh, Brits actually losing out. And some of these people probably voted for Brexit, even being quite rich. Uh, but uh, I think uh, the most important elephant graph which does look a little bit like elephant with a very long trunk, is coming from our region. So this is the uh, graph of how people in transition countries, depending on their, uh, depending on their place in the income distribution, have uh, benefited and lost out from the transition. On average, you see that people in this 27 years have seen their incomes growing by about 60%. Uh, but uh, the, there is a difference between people at the very top and people in the middle. So people at the very top of the distribution, top 5%, have benefited quite a bit. Uh, people at the very bottom, this is people who live in the poorest transition countries, mostly in Central Asia. Their incomes were growing faster, which is normal. Poorer countries usually f grow faster simply because of uh, the law of uh, convergence. Uh, but then if you look at the middle class in the uh, transition countries, you see that their growth income growth rates were slower. And this is especially true for the first years of reforms. So if you look at the red line, which is the change in income in the first seven years of reforms, you see that pretty much in the first few years of the reforms, everybody lost out except the top 5%. So top 5%, these are the people you talk to in, uh, uh, in transition countries. These are the best educated, best suited for market economy. These are the people who uh, won even in the first years of reforms. And uh, these are the people who probably, uh, uh, don't, uh, who probably don't fully understand the, the pain of the reforms. So um, 
This is a typical uh, graph uh, within a country. This is Russia. Many graphs look like that. Actually, a graph for Hungary, for example, would look similarly. So this graph kind of shows you how Russia uh, experienced transition. You see, again, top 20% have benefited. Uh, bottom 80% have benefited much less. Now, almost every Russian has seen incomes going up. But if you look at GDP numbers or average income growth, that would be 70% increase in the last 27 years. Now, if you ask how many Russians have seen those 70% higher incomes in their pockets, the answer would be top 20%. Well, top 20 Russians have seen much better outcomes, but uh, even top 20%, these are the guys who benefited. Bottom 80% have not seen uh, this uh, average income growth. Uh, so this is the country by country chart. So uh, this, is, uh, uh, this is a chart where, where we break down the distribution by deciles, and the red guys are the ones who, whose incomes were growing slower than average. And the other color, probably yellow, uh, uh, the, the, these are people whose uh, incomes grew faster than average. And you see uh, that uh, Russian experience is quite typical. So it is typical for this region that top 20%, top 30% have grown above average. Uh, the bottom 70% have seen their income growing at slower than average rate. Which means whenever we look at averages, we shouldn't be surprised that the majority doesn't see averages as representative. Now, things are very different in those countries uh, that uh, recently joined the BRD. For example, Turkey has been very inclusive in the sense that bottom 10% and top 10% grew below average. Actually, if you look at the numbers, only a little bit below average, while middle 80% have grown faster than average. And again, not much faster than average. So it's pretty, pretty uniform. Now, let us raise the bar and ask the question which I mentioned in the beginning. How many people have seen their incomes converging to the incomes of the rich countries? That was, in the end of the day, the goal of transition, to see the gap between Western and Eastern countries uh, uh, narrowing. In the last 27 years, uh, different people had different experiences. Now, green here means incomes were growing faster than G7 country average. Uh, red, declining in real terms, and yellow, growing in real terms, but slower than rich countries. And you see, again, a typical experience is Russia. Top 40% have seen convergence, some convergence. Uh, bottom 10% have seen negative growth. And middle 50% have seen slow growth, not fast enough to converge to rich countries. And then, indeed, you can see countries like Ukraine, uh, where you have negative income growth for everybody, except for the very rich, of course. And then if you look at uh, Middle Eastern countries and North African countries where we work, everybody has been closing the gap with the rich. So, so now if you ask people, uh, do you think inequality stopped increasing? It is interesting that when we compare what has happened uh, in the first years of transition and the later decades, uh, people still think that inequality is increasing. We don't see that in the data anymore. So this is the chart where on horizontal axis we put official data on inequality, change in inequality in the last five years. And uh, basically in the last five, actually in the last 10, actually in the last 20 years, inequality stopped increasing. But people don't see it this way. So you see almost everywhere uh, the change in inequality is not officially, is not, is not high, but almost everywhere people subjectively believe 
that inequality has increased in the last five years. And uh, with the exception of Tajikistan, the large majority of re uh, respondents in our survey say, said in the last five years, inequality has actually increased. Now, the question is why? Either we mismeasure or people get a biased uh, view from media, from politicians, from each other, I don't know. Uh, there is one big <coughs> issue, another big elephant in the room, which our survey doesn't cover, which is the concentration of wealth at the very high end of the distribution. These top 20, top 100, top 500 people are not covered by household surveys. And this wealth is now very visible by everybody. And that's why this report also looks at this issue. So our region is unique among uh, uh, emerging markets regions in being uh, home to many billionaires. So if you look at the share of uh, our region in uh, the global wealth of billionaires and compare it to share of our region's GDP and global GDP, you see that we have over-representation of billionaires. Uh, this has not been the case just 15 years ago. But now it is, and it's different. Uh, the only other billionaire paradise is uh, advanced economies. By definition, these are richer countries. Now, this is not really scary. What is scary is the next graph. The next graph looks at the source of wealth of billionaires. And basically, here, our region is very unique. So in our region, majority of wealth of billionaires comes from commodities. In other countries, oil, copper, uh, other natural resources are present. But these rents are taxed. In our case, uh, we have a lot of very rich people. And uh, uh, the public does not seem to accept that this is fair. And this is indeed very, very uh, different from all other regions. So if you look at share of commodities and billionaires' wealth in other regions, you see in advanced economies, it's very, very small. In some other emerging markets, it's about 10%. And uh, in our economies, it's about 50%. Of course, it's driven by Russia and Ukraine, but not only. Yeah. So um, when we talk about policy uh, uh, lessons, uh, I'm sure that we'll talk uh, a lot after, after my presentation about those issues. But I would like just to put on the table the big issue of uh, differentiating the problems. Poverty is one problem, inequality is another problem, and wealth concentration is yet another problem. And I'm happy to talk more about taxing wealth. I'm happy uh, talking more about better institutions, antitrust policy. I'm also convinced that we need to think about uh, competition policy in media, uh, because what we see now emerging in our region, it's not invented in our region. Uh, I would say that our uh, region's uh, politicians learned it from uh, some uh, southern European country where a businessman controlled uh, a media empire and used media for promoting uh, his political uh, interests, which in turn protected his business interests. So this uh, uh, oligarchic model where you use both media and politics to protect your business and use profits that you get there through this protection uh, and uh, distorted regulation uh, to fund your media and politics. This is something that uh, our, our, uh, our politicians like. Uh, and of course, to fight that, you need to make sure that uh, media and politics are protected from uh, business influence. So let me actually now talk about stuff which uh, audiences usually find more exciting, um, uh, about stuff related to uh, better measures of uh, impact of transition. Why am I saying that some other measures can be better than income? We are economists. We believe in economic data. But income before transition 
has not provided a full picture of well-being. You may have 100 rubles, but the real well-being is not about having the money, but being able to spend the money in the right way. And uh, that's why, in addition to looking at income, incomes and inequality of incomes, we also look at subjective well-being and objective well-being. We ask people how happy they are, and we also measure people how tall they are. Uh, why do we talk about height? Because uh, in development economics, it's a, an established fact that if people face hardship when they are born, and one year old and two years old, they grow up shorter. And so what we do now, we look at individuals who were born around the beginning of transition, which was a different year in different countries, of course. Uh, so we look at those individuals. By now, they finally grew up to their adult height. So we can finally measure the impact of transition on their adult height. And we find that these individuals born in transition are one centimeter shorter than people who were born before them or after them, which is a huge effect. Doesn't look like a lot. But if you look at people who were born in times of civil war or conflict, that would also be about one centimeter. So this effect of, of, of pain of early years of reforms is real. And whenever we talk to people who said it was, it was just a, a, a small recession or a short recession, well, in some countries it was a long recession and a deep recession. And uh, uh, unfortunately, we see, uh, still see the marks of that. Now, we also have good news. And the good news is that people uh, don't remember that anymore. People feel happy, finally. This is actually, again, very new. So if you ask uh, 10 years ago or five years ago, people living in transition countries, how happy they are, and compare them with people with similar incomes in non-transition countries, people in transition countries would be less happy, controlling for everything, for age, for income, for everything. And uh, it is only now, in 2016, where we can say the transition happiness gap is finally closed. And, uh, here I show the data from the previous round of our Life and Transition Survey and the current round. But this data, uh, th this finding is also confirmed by other sources like World Value Survey or, or Gallup data. But here you can see very clearly. So what is this picture? So on horizontal axis, you have uh, income, lo logarithm of GDP in per, uh, percent, uh, percent power. Uh, in thousands of dollars per capita. On the vertical, uh, uh, vertical axis, you have percentage of people who report being satisfied with their lives. And so in, in general, you see there is a positive correlation. There are three countries which are completely out of, out of the cloud. So these are very happy countries of uh, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, and Uzbekistan. So we have not run a survey in Turkmenistan. We traditionally, cannot run a survey there. Uh, there, we are very sure. Uh, Kazakhstan seems to be with the rest of the crowd. Basically, we do have this compliance bias in those uh, Central Asian countries. Whenever you say, do you agree with the statement that uh, life is good? They say, yes. <laughs> do you agree with the statement that market economy is better than command economy? Yes. <laughs> These are countries which support markets and democracy by far uh, to a greater extent that, uh, than other countries. So let us keep them out of the picture for the moment. And let's look at the rest of the country. So each arrow shows the movement between 2010 and 2016. So uh, you see that in 2010, we ran uh, the survey in, in transition countries, but also in some Western countries, including UK, France, Sweden, and Germany. So let me 
uh, let me show it here. So these are, these are the Western countries in 2010. And this dotted line is the trend line for post-communist countries in 2010. So you see that all the Western countries were way above the trend in terms of happiness. Only Italy was pretty much on the trend, right? Italy, by, uh, already then, uh, was experiencing uh, quite a bit of problems. Now, if you look at what happened between 2010 and 2016, you see that many countries have had a great increase in happiness. And uh, some increase in income, not much, but happiness actually recovered. And the reason for that is 2010 was still a year after the Great Recession. Our region was hit really badly by the Great Recession, and so we see this recovery. So the dotted line now is higher, so the trend line for post-communist countries is higher. Now, we don't have UK, Sweden, and France anymore in our data set. We have Germany, which actually converged to the trend. Germans are less happy now than six years ago. Italy went way down below the trend. Then we also have Turkey, which is around the trend. And then we have Greece and Cyprus, which are below the trend. So we only have a few comparators in the West, but all of them are either on the trend or below the trend. And as I said, if you do the same with the Gallup data, where you have 120 countries, you also find the same. So basically, this graph kind of shows you that, well, some of the convergence happened from, from the West. The Western countries became less happy. But also, in the East, countries have become more happy. And by now, the happiness convergence is completed. So this is kind of a piece of good news. So these are regressions that we run. And let me uh, move to the story about uh, height. So this is a graph uh, where we show how tall people are in transition countries, depending when they were born, where zero is the year of transition, minus five means you were born five years before transition, minus 50, 50 years before transition. And so you see an increasing trend, which is normal. It's observed in all countries, not just transition countries. Uh, younger cohorts are born in more prosperous times. They're growing uh, taller and taller until uh, incomes reaches something like 15 or 20,000 uh, per capita. And then you see that this trend continues until people born around transition. Then you have uh, a decline. And then after transition, younger generation is again taller. And uh, this is actually uh, uh, something that you can also see in the regression, controlling for age, because transition happened in different years in different countries. So let me, again, skip that, uh, the tables. Uh, we run a number of robustness checks. What we also do, we go beyond average, and we ask the question, who suffered most from, from early years of reforms? And we show that the transition hit the least privileged households uh, harder. So households where mother uh, had less, where parents had less education, households where mother had less employment, therefore incomes were lower. These are the, the individuals uh, whose height was affected the most. If you are born uh, in, a, in a family where both parents would have tertiary education, you have no impact on, on height. So um, the next question is, let me skip this. Let me actually uh, ask a question whether people born in transition are more or less happy than their counterparts. The answer is they're not less happy. So this, it's almost like a fossil mark, We're almost like a paleontologist looking at the marks, a track record of transition, a mark which we can see in people, but no longer people themselves can actually tell you that that pain was, was uh, tangible. And they were very young at that point, right? Zero years or one year. So, uh, but if you ask them, are you happy or less happy than people 
couple of years older, a couple of year, years younger, actually they are, if anything, more happy. And the reason for that is they're better educated, they probably have better career opportunities. This is difficult to measure, but education we can see. They do have uh, better education. They have same employment uh, status, they have same income, but they have better education. They are, in general, uh, better satisfied, uh, higher, uh, they report higher satisfaction. So, um, in that sense, uh, in that sense uh, uh, it's, not, it's not really negative. It tells you how painful transition was, but it also tells you that by now, the pain of transition has been overcome. Took 25 years, long time, uh, but still, this is what happened. Now, once we open up the average and look within the cohorts and ask the question, okay, some of these people are happy. Are all of these people happy? The answer is, depends which family they were born into. And again, we can see that the uh, parental background matters. If, if you are born in transition, in a family, uh, with less employment and less education of parents, uh, you're more likely to be less happy. So, um, Let me now uh, talk a, a little bit about the issue we care about the most, inequality of opportunity, which is, of course, directly related to issues like parental background, but also gender that uh, uh, Jonathan uh, mentioned in the beginning. So uh, basically, uh, we, of course, care about inequality of wealth or income, but we also care to what extent inequality of income is driven by factors you cannot change, such as parental background, place of birth, uh, ethnicity, uh, gender. And this is what we do in this chapter. We try to figure out to what extent inequality of opportunity is high or low in our countries. And of course, it matters for many, many reasons. It matters in terms of economic efficiency. If you're a talented person born in the wrong circumstances, you will not be able to implement your potential, and therefore the whole economy loses out. However, it's also unfair, and not just economists as human being, uh, beings uh, think it's unfair. It's also important for political economists who understand that if majority of the society believes it's unfair, this system will be rejected by the majority. This is something that we see in some countries happening as we speak. So, uh, interestingly, there is a very high correlation between inequality of uh, outcomes, in this case, for example, inequality of income, and uh, inequality of opportunity. And the reason for that is, of course, very simple. If uh, you have inequality of opportunity, you would have inequality of income. If you have inequality of income, your kids are less likely to get good education. And, of course, a lot depends on policies. There are countries where access to education is not very correlated Access to good education is not very correlated with parental background. There are countries where it's actually very highly correlated with the parental background. But in general, of course, uh, you cannot find countries where inequality of opportunity is high and inequality of income is low. And uh, once we start looking at the measures of inequality of opportunity and inequality of income, we see that in some countries inequality of opportunity accounts for half of inequality of income. So half of inequality is driven by factors like parental background, gender, and, and uh, ethnicity, and place of birth, and so on. So uh, this is the country by country chart. It shows the overall contribution of inequality of opportunity to overall inequality. So the height of the bar is Gini points. So 15 means uh, if your Gini is whatever, 30 or 40, 15 percentage points of that is explained by factors such as parental education, parental membership in communist country, gender, place of birth, uh, ethnicity. 
And uh, different colors show contribution of different uh, factors. You see overall the bars are higher than in Germany. Not everywhere, but in most places. Uh, uh, and uh, you also see that uh, parental background is probably the most important factor in most countries. Now, in some countries, you also see ethnicity playing a role. Gender plays uh, an important role in many countries. We don't have, as I said, uh, summit countries. We don't have North African Middle Eastern countries in this survey. Uh, but even in our traditional countries, you still have countries where gender plays a role. So in that sense, in that sense it, it is an important factor. On the other hand, ethnicity and place of birth is, is less important. So um, we also look at access to jobs. We also look at access to education. And one of the interesting facts that we find is that uh, education is uh, accessible whatever gender you are. Women do have as, ma as many years of education as higher percentage of tertiary education as men in our region. The problem is that actually uh, they still earn less. So if you are an educated woman, you earn more than uneducated woman. If you're an educated man, you earn more than if you're uneducated man. But men with the same level of education earn more than women with the very same level of education. So this is an issue which remains, and this is the issue of course, uh, sug which suggests that there is some un unfinished business that we have to do. So uh, one other thing which is discussed in the report, but I I'm not showing neither graphs nor pictures here, is people who, are in, uh, who live in countries with high inequality of opportunity are more likely to reject reforms, are more likely uh, to vote against reforms. It's also, uh, it's also related to their own perception we ask people, which decile of income distribution are you in? And uh, uh, we should say that, uh, interestingly, these things are sometimes very uh, imprecise. So people with reasonably high income report to be below average. But uh, still, again, if you are in a low inequality of, opportun low inequality of opportunities uh, country, you are more likely to be reporting yourself to be in the middle class and supporting the reforms. So uh, being a bank, we also do quite a bit of work on financial inclusion. And there is a whole chapter, which unfortunately I will not have uh, time to uh, present. But in general, we look at uh, access to financial services in this chapter. And we look at uh, inequality of access to financial uh, uh, services in the chapter. And we basically show that uh, most of the problems are, surprise, surprise, in less developed part of our region. This is where access is lower, inequality of access is higher. And uh, also the uh, important issue is uh, age and gender. And we see a gender gap, especially among middle age and uh, older cohorts, especially in poorer countries. Uh, one of the things which uh, a lot of people in our region are excited about is presence of foreign banks. We actually look at that. Uh, we use uh, unique data which we got from Austrian Central Bank. Uh, not only from the World Bank, and we find that uh, foreign banks help, but they mostly help uh, middle class, uh, not the poor. The, fo the foreign banks do a good job, but uh, what they do mostly benefits uh, uh, the uh, upper middle class, middle class educated people and people living in the city, which is, of course, something that uh, would be uh, expected. But uh, still, we should not forget when we, when we think that foreign bank uh, presence can be a panacea. So let me conclude. Uh, the takeaway from this report is we need to look beyond average. 
We need to look at the distribution. And we need to remember that transition was a painful experience for a majority. And uh, uh, the, there is a piece of good news here, which is the happiness convergence has happened. Now, a lot of people would say it's actually bad news that it took 25 years. But I would say better late than never. Uh, some people from uh, the west of this continent would say we need to do a structural reform. We need to reform labor market or pension system. Looking at your report, we would say it takes 25 years to restore happiness after painful structural reforms. Uh, to that, I would respond that this is a unique experience where you have a systemic transformation. It's much more painful than reform a labor market or a pension system. Uh, I think it is very important to keep in mind that it, it was painful because it was systemic and uh, uh, universal, comprehensive. So probably if you reform a labor market uh, or pension system or financial system, it should not be as painful. Now, another thing, though, is if you look at this report, especially in conjunction, conjunction with 2013 transition report, which is called Stock and Transition, you can take, uh, uh, take away something uh, scarier, which is if you do a reform, which is painful in the beginning, but then pay, pays off like this, like this report shows, you may end up with a situation where the pain will bring to power certain populist politicians, and then they will uh, remove checks and balances, and you will not be able to kick them out once again. So this is something to keep in mind for our Western counterparts. If you do the reforms, you need to think about the losers from the very beginning. You, you cannot just come out and say, majority will be losers, but in the long run, everything will be fine. You may end up with a situation where the majority will kick you out, and people who come in without constructive agenda will be able to hang around longer than you think. And uh, I think this is a very, very important lesson. And we, of course, we uh, are not saying that uh, uh, you need just to give transfers, subsidies. Of course, you need to create opportunities. You need to create jobs. You need to create careers. And unfortunately, it, it goes a little bit beyond the scope of the reform, talking about skills, education, uh, access to good jobs. This is something that uh, probably uh, my colleagues on the panel will, will talk about. Let me stop here. Sergey, thank you very much indeed. So there's a wealth of information there. It's good to see we've had inclusive growth for billionaires anyway, yes, if no one else. Yes. So, yes. Um, you will get a chance to ask your questions in a minute, but let's, let's get some reaction from our panel. And uh, I'll start with you, Heather, I think. Thank you. Well, um, I'm having a, a deja vu moment because I'm remembering um, a launch of the transition report, 1996, 20 years ago, uh, made by Nicholas Stern, one of Sergei's illustrious predecessors as chief economist, um, at which at Chatham House, which I was working at at the time. And I remember the presentation very clearly. And it was all about market forces. It was all about how privatization, structural reforms of the kinds you've been, you've been talking about, and especially bankable projects by international donors were going to, going to sort it all out. And that a rising tide would indeed lift all boats. So it's really welcome that 20 years later, the EBRD is widening its scope and issuing an, an entire report on inequality. This is great. It's not to say this was completely absent from the EBRD's thinking. You can see in the initial indicators in the 1990s, there are measures of, of social issues. They're there. But you notice how, for example, there's much more focus on education reform than on health. So this issue about height is also about 
social, public services, which were absolutely decimated during the early years of transition. And the focus on education rather than on other elements of inequality, um, and of course gender was, was pretty well entirely missing because there was an assumption that state socialism had, it had um, uh, given women an overproportionate um, influence, alas, no longer the case. And I remember that at that launch, um, one of the rather more left-leaning um, economists working on transition, Mario Nuti, who at that point was at London Business School, and whom I know a number of you uh, have worked with and know very well, he asked, so where is this transition going? Um, if you're saying it's going to take 50 years to catch up, who are the left behind and who are they going to vote for? So it's not that everybody had forgotten about this issue at that time. But I think what's very interesting is the way that the, that height of neoliberal economics really affected our views of what transition is and what success looks like. And now is a very opportune moment to look back at, at that and to think forward to what transition success will look like uh, in 20 years from now. What kind of thing do we really want to see? And this matters not only for the EBRD, which of course has always been you know, focused on SMEs, on, on bankable projects, uh, and, and so on, but also on other donors. And here I'm thinking about the European Union as we're here in Brussels, because, of course, the EU also promoted a far more neoliberal economic agenda to uh, Central and Eastern European countries that wanted to join, and indeed the Balkans, than was ever practiced by any member state, even the UK. Um, but, of course, the big difference in that um, during that period of the 1990s was that foreign direct investment was at such a level in many of the countries that it eased the pain to a very large extent. And that, that, uh, that injection of foreign capital at a moment of great global growth and liquidity made a huge difference. And of course, that's not available to countries which are entering our, or are in transition now. So that means we have to think very carefully about the point that um, Sergei finished with about what are the policy measures that are necessary. Um, he finished with, with the view that it's about equality of opportunity, education, financial inclusion, and better connectivity. And I would add a few more issues there. Because inequality is a very complex policy dilemma. And it's one that requires a number of different policy injections from what typically, both at national and international level, are very different areas of policies with very different epistemic communities who often don't think together about the kinds of populations that they need to serve. And my, I'll come in just a moment to, to who these people are, but I just note that in this era of, of increasing populism, there's a real risk that the focus on those left behind will be more and more on the supposed excluded middle, basically on the angry white voters who've lost their jobs from traditional industries, rather than on those who are actually most excluded, whom Sergei was talking about. And there's a real danger that policy is going to focus on redistribution along the averages, because that's the way of winning back the Trump voters and the Brexit voters. This is, this is what you see many politicians grasping for just at the moment. Managing. Yeah, they're just about managing, or even those who are still actually fairly well off. I mean, he was talking about you know Germany and Italy and so on, where people are afraid what they're worried about is something that they have not experienced since the Industrial Revolution. Their families have not experienced since the Industrial Revolution a sense that their children will live worse than they have lived. And the dynamics of declining economies, stagnant economies, ones where growth will be very slow, that are rich and people are prosperous, but where the sense that future generations will live worse, that's a completely different political dynamic from countries where people are still not that well off, but where they feel that the trend is upward. So the feel that the trend is downward, even if it's from a high level and it's a slow downward trend, that gives you a quite different politics from low level going up, especially going up quite fast. So I think in addition to the very relevant... Um, 
point that Sergei raised about it took 25 years to restore happiness after structural reforms. Um, 25 years from now, will Europeans on average be a lot more unhappy, even if they are just as rich or not very much, much poorer? So the politics of this matter, and when we come to this complex policy dilemma, and this is where I would really encourage some more focus of effort because it's going to get lost in the political noise. We need to hear the signal about those um, from this report. It, it provides very useful data on those who are really left behind. And in particular, the multiple and reinforcing, self-mutually reinforcing forms of inequality. So in particular, the way that you see a cycle of social exclusion, unemployment, poverty, poor education affecting some groups. And, and here we come to, to what Sergei was pointing out about um, indicators of, of what is likely to make you more unequal, or what has made you more unequal. And the thing that I, I would love to hear more about from the EBRD is the role of ethnicity. So education is there, gender is very important, but ethnicity is something which international um, financial institutions and international donors have generally been very loath to touch. Uh, ethnicity is an issue for uh, those who are dealing with values and who are interested in minority rights. It's not really an issue for economics. Well, actually, it is an issue for economics. Who is the most unequally treated uh, population across Europe, both, both you know, east, west, north, and south? It's the Roma because of this self-reinforcing dynamic of social exclusion, unemployment, poverty, low levels of education, and of course, low health outcomes. Health is also a really important figure in all of this. So those, and, and this is a very complex knot to untie. How do you bring in um, anti-discrimination measures as part of the policy mix on redistribution? It still matters, um, but it's something that it's quite hard to sell in the current prevailing political um, climate. So the focus on equal opportunities, I think, is very welcome, but it's really important also to look at the values issues, and particularly because so much of inequality is actually about feelings, something that's very hard to bring into economics. Even behavioral economics has difficulty capturing people's feelings, because inequality is about fairness, and it's about jealousy, and it's about emotions that are very hard to capture in uh, any economic model. So looking at, at the political responses, um, you need to look at where the harshest effects of inequality are fall, but you also need to find a language in which to talk about the emotions associated with inequality so that redistribution is not just a matter of who's going to pay and who's going to receive, but about finding outcomes that are better for the society as a whole. There's a very strong emotional dimension to that. So it's, it's not only about... Um, what's the average level of happiness, but how people feel relative to other people in the population, relative, relative um, incomes and also relative happiness. So I would suggest moving from transition for all uh, to unequal opportunities, also to including security for all, so how do people feel about their economic future, and um, un untangling the tricky knot of, of multiple forms of inequality. Thank you very much indeed. Some interesting thoughts there. Katerina. Thank you very much. And uh, I want to, first of all, say I'll never again go after Heather on a panel. <laughs> to match her eloquence and all the points that I wanted to make have already been, been made and, uh, and more eloquently. So that's just that you guys know. <laughs> and uh, I want to uh, indeed... Uh, comment and congratulate EBRD on, on having this report. And I think that uh, this is a tremendous uh, food for thought and interesting insights and incredibly pertinent in today's world. Uh, I was in Washington uh, uh, last Friday at the, at the World Bank Conference on Migration. And uh, 
there was a lot of wonderful talk about, you know, what are the facts, what is the mythology, and what are the potential policy responses. And on, on our panel, one of the, the, the points I and other people made was that it's actually the biggest challenge is the politics of it and the narrative and the, and the emotions and, and the uh, perceptions that, that people have. Uh, they were making the point that even today, Europe is still below the transition wave of the 1990s when former Yugoslavia broke up, but the, where solutions were found, people were integrated, there are still a lot of IDPs, but COMEM, uh, we are going on, but the, but the feeling, the perception is uh, much, much worse. And, uh, and so it's, it's in, uh, in that environment where having, uh, having a good framework and analysis of what are some of the the drivers behind the reforms, what are the, what are the opportunities as well as threats is, is very useful. I take uh, sort of one very important uh, lesson from what uh, Sergei was describing uh, for a policymaker. I'm in the European uh, Commission. We deal with the Western Balkans, Turkey, and the neighborhood countries, both, both south and, uh, and east. And something I have learned in my policymaking life is that policies do matter. The way you structure them, the way you target them, it does matter. And, and that we often fall prey to what I call mythology-based policymaking rather than evidence-based. And, and, uh, and so this is actually very, very useful because uh, something that, and you put it very eloquently, now I'll be able to use some of your slides to make that point, that, you know, the, the bell curve and the averages, they are only averages, and they very much leave out the, the, uh, the, the parts on the, on, the, on the side, whether on the top or on the, on the bottom. And I think that we really need to rethink how we how we really incorporate the distributional aspects of, uh, of policies, whether we, do, uh, whether we do investments in education, whether we do investments in women, which by the way, we, we do have quite a lot because especially in the, in the southern neighborhood, uh, gender is a, a huge detrimental uh, factor to, to one's opportunities, or whether we talk about uh, financial uh, inclusions because and this is all the more important than we see it in today's political dilemmas on both sides of the Atlantic that the new media landscape that allows anybody with a view or a bias or a prejudice make it known at zero cost to everybody around uh, to have uh, good measures and then well-targeted policies actually can make a difference. And the one area that I would like to demonstrate it on, uh, Heather already, already mentioned, I would very much uh, um, uh, hope that EBRD can take in, the, in a reflection after this report the question of that it's hard to have a discussion about this part of the world without once mentioning the word Roma. The largest European minority, <coughs> the size of bigger than Netherlands, that lives in uh, depth of exclusion and poverty that you only see in, you know, on the outskirts of Calcutta. 
the, 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 the slums that you see in Eastern Europe when the weather, which we didn't talk about weather, but uh, right, all the slums in the third world are around the equator, and then come the Roma slums in Eastern Europe where it gets minus 25 in the winter. And, and it's not only a matter of fairness and uh, uh, equality of opportunity, it's really a fundamental economic problem Jold will tell you uh, probably more precisely, but in 2030, there are going to be 30% of labor market entrants are going to be Roma. And so it really matters whether they are going to be educated, whether they are going to be not educated, and how are they going to be educated, and are they going to be healthy or are they not going to be healthy? regardless whether they are five centimeters uh, taller or not. But uh, you, have a, you have in this region, in your core region, uh, a group that has been the biggest loser of transition, but it's not only the biggest loser, it's the forgotten biggest loser of transition, just like they were the losers, the, the, the forgotten children of Holocaust, that only now you talk about that in terms of the size, it was very comparable to the Jewish population that suffered in, suffered in the Holocaust. But they, are, they were not talked about because there's no country to make lobbying on their behalf. And they are exactly in the same position on, uh, on the transition ladder. So I would, I'm using that as an example, A, to encourage you to, to look at that aspect, but also to say that uh, what uh, the point that Heather was making is that it's not only about the average, but it's, it's really the, the sides and looking at the drivers of exclusion and some of the um, policies that can help, like, for example, introduction of early childhood education and even going further, prenatal care, et cetera, that really you need to start building that capital from, from the very beginning. So that's just as a, as a provocative example. Thank you very much indeed, uh, Jolt. I think your report made, made many, many uh, interesting new insights and, and I care. Can you hear me? Can you switch on my mic? Yeah, yeah I think, yeah. Uh, or maybe, can I get yours? Yes, why not? Why did you borrow this one? Sure. Yeah. Does, it, does it work now? Okay. <clears throat> so I, I was just praising the report that uh, it's really excellent, very nice reading, beautiful charts, very <coughs> well-designed analysis. So. So indeed, I mean, I think it deserves reading and, and a lot of lot of discussion. <laughs> a nice a nice gift Christmas gift, in, indeed, indeed. Now, <clears throat> you know what what I sought to do now <clears throat> to use my my few minutes is to offer some some additional conclusions or complementary conclusions that we mostly draw from the research that we <clears throat> uh, we did with with Guntram. Because I think many of the many of our conclusions are also in line a lot with, with yours. <coughs> For example, we also find a very strong role of parental background. Uh, <coughs> it has an impact on health, on life expectancy. Poorer people live much shorter lives than than, than richer people. It has uh, impact on education. Uh, poorer people tend to have much lower educated than than richer people. It has a major impact on on jobs and and on income. But I would I sought to to add a few additional things and also 
focus a bit on what happened in the recent crisis because you looked at this 26, seven year period since 1989 and a lot has happened since then. But you also had a very big, big crisis more recently uh, starting in the US in, in 2007, 2008. So first, just, just a chart which, which we copied from, from, from a work uh, which shows social mobility, the prospect for social mobility. So in the horizontal axis, you can see income inequality, an indicator, the, the Gini coefficient. And on the vertical axis, a little bit complicated indicator, but in simple term, uh, terms, it measures how much, what is the correlation <coughs> between the income of a parent and his or, or her children when the children grow up. So when the correlation is high, <coughs> it means that <coughs> children who were born in rich families tend to be rich when they grow up and children born to poor families, they tend to remain poor, poor when they grow up. And indeed, what you can see here is that this relationship is very much dependent on income inequality. So on the right hand, you can see the United Kingdom, United States, and Italy, where inequality is much higher. And in these countries, parental background matters much, much more. But on the left hand side, you can see the Scandinavian countries. And you do see that indeed, income inequality is lower. Uh, and also, parental background matters much less. So I think this is a very, very strong reason why I think inequality should be a target of, of policy. Uh, not just because of, of you know, what, what's the impact on, on growth, because I believe and I think that the literature on, on what the impact of income inequality on average growth is quite inconclusive. I mean, many authors, including more recently the IMF uh, and the World Bank concluded, came out with big reports saying that inequality is bad for growth, but <coughs> other people came out with opposite results. <coughs> so I think not, not the average matters, but indeed uh, opportunities matter a lot, and uh, uh, indeed inequality uh, limits a lot of opportunities. And another, again, I, I promise to focus a bit on, on, on the crisis, and this is now our, our own, own research, and it looks at the European Union countries. Many of them are EBRD countries, but also there are some advanced countries. And what you can see here on, on the horizontal axis is the pre-crisis income inequality. And on the vertical axis, you can see what was the change in household borrowing. In the United States, there was a lot of discussion uh, arguing that since inequality increased in the pre-crisis period, <coughs> the poorer and middle class could maintain their living standards only by borrowing more, and that was <coughs> basically one root of the crisis, that households became overly indebted. And you can see something quite similar here, that again, in countries where income inequality in Europe is higher, pre-crisis household borrowing tend to be higher. And the next chart shows the consequence. <coughs> so here, on the horizontal axis, you can see household borrowing before the crisis. And on the vertical, you can see how much consumption, private consumption, changed during the crisis. And indeed, you see a very clear relationship, <coughs> and not surprisingly, <coughs> and also quite similar to what happened in the United States, <coughs> that you know, households which are more indebted and which you know, became more indebted faster certainly suffered more uh, during the crisis. Now, <coughs> certainly, this requires a level of financial inclusion. Uh, but your very nice chapter that you did not have time to present showed that at least the European Union members of the EBRD countries, financial inclusion at a quite high level. Uh, but still, I think it's indeed, indeed uh, I think, a warning uh, signal that, that indeed when inequality is high, 
then indeed some poorer people may be pushed uh, for, for higher indebtedness, which unfortunately would have major consequences. And if you look at, uh, you know, this just shows macroeconomic indicators, but if you look at other indicators like unemployment, it's very much correlated. If you look at poverty, very much correlated. So indeed, <coughs> I think it gives a further reason why inequality should be an issue. Uh, <coughs> another issue which is more related to policy is, uh, is what the countries are actually doing with their social redistribution systems and how efficient or effective they are. Here on the horizontal uh, axis, you can see the average social expenditure as a share of GDP. So in, in Romania, they spent very little, only 11%. Uh, in Germany, they spent a lot, almost one quarter of GDP. And on the vertical axis, you can see how much reduction is achieved from the pre-redistribution, which is called the market inequality, so before taxes and transfers, after redistribution, after taxes and transfers. And quite naturally, you see an upward sloping curve that you know those countries which re redistribute more, certainly they tend to re uh, may be more efficient uh, in reducing inequality which uh, emerges from market developments. But you can also see you know, quite large variation, and here I highlighted two groups of countries, Spain, Greece, Italy, and Portugal, and Bulgaria and Romania, which are well below the line. So it means that you know, for a given level of social expenditure, they receive a much lower level of reduction in income inequality. And you know why they are redistributing, certainly they are redistributing to help the poor, uh, <coughs> not, not helping the rich. Uh, why if you look at, let's say, Sweden or Denmark, which is on the top, you know, they practically spend the same amount of money as Greece, <coughs> and they receive much, much more. So I think this is an important lesson that, that um, what domestic politicians do and how they use the money they have has a major, major importance. So it's not always the question of more money, because certainly with more money we can, we can fund more social programs, more targeted active labor market policies and, and poverty alleviation and so on and so on. But if you use the available money much more efficiently, uh, that would already be, I think, a big opportunity. And we're very happy to see a similar chart, by the way, for other EBR countries. So let me just encourage you. Here again, we collected data on European Union countries. But I would, can also imagine major differences uh, uh, on the efficiency of, of social redistribution system in other EBR regions. So, and the last table I, I will show you can be a little bit big, but if you read the title, uh, I think it already says the message very clearly, hopefully that during the crisis, spending on education, family, and children was cut, while spending on elderly uh, was preserved. Now, we can discuss, so this shows basically the changes in fiscal, public sector, general government expenditures during the crisis years from 2009 to 12. For different country groups, again, I highlighted Greece, Ireland, Portugal, Spain, Italy, and the three, three Baltic countries. And certainly some countries, or many countries had to do, I mean, fiscal cuts, you know, when public debt and budget deficit is, is very, very high, then uh, certainly some fiscal adjustment has to be implemented. But what the composition is, is again a major policy choice. And, you know, let's look at the Baltic countries, which, which uh, I mean, also belong to, to the EBRD region, so on, 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 on right. <coughs> you can see that on education, uh, there was a 7% cut. On old age, there was a 15% increase. And on family and children, there was a 14% cut. Now, you can say that certainly the number of pensioners increased, and indeed there was a gradual increase, but even if you uh, control for the number of people in the respective groups, you still see major differences 
that somehow older people were supported while younger people in education uh, were, were cut. And indeed, these are all the reasons that you, that you mentioned that uh, you know, for opportunities, especially helping, helping the poorer, education is really, really crucial. Spending on family and children, really, really crucial. So again, you know, what countries do uh, with their available financial means can have a major impact on, on what kind of um, uh, <coughs> opportunities they can offer for their uh, societies and, and, their <coughs> and, and people living in their country. So <coughs> um, I have two more slides, but let me, let me skip uh, because uh, for the sake of time and, and let, let, let allow uh, the, the audience to ask questions. But again, I would like to indeed congratulate because it's a very, very nice report and I can just recommend wholeheartedly to all of you to read it. Thank you. Joel, thank you very much indeed. We, uh, we have about 10 or minutes or so. Uh, are there any questions? Well, I'll, Guntram, I'll let you go first, and then uh, after that we'll move amongst uh, the rest of the audience. Guntram. Okay, uh, let me also congratulate Sergei for the wonderful report. Um, I have basically uh, one, one, the two, two questions. One is on the urban-rural divide, which you haven't talked much about, but which I think in many of the countries you look at is a major issue. Take Slovakia. The development of Bratislava stands far uh, apart from the rest of the country. Similarly, in Poland, the big countries, Warsaw is now in, in purchasing power parity, and Joel had a nice, nice chart on that, in purchasing power parity is richer than Vienna. So you really see this urban-rural divide, which has become a major, major issue, uh, and you didn't highlight that in your data, so I was just wondering whether, whether you would like to comment on that. Now, my second question is perhaps a little bit more complicated, which is about, you know, what, what is it really that we conclude from all of this? Because so, so, so what, I, what I read is basically a description of, of the reality of the last 27 years, now, I guess one question is, um, and, and Heather was pointing, pointing to that, is uh, could we have designed things differently um, at the beginning of transition, and if so, how? Okay, now th there we can speculate for a long time, and you know, God knows uh, uh, th this was a difficult period on political levels, on many, many different levels. You've been in Russia, uh, uh, and so I don't, I don't think I need to tell you that, but, but certainly this, this is a little bit, let's say that's the past. But let's look at now. So, so what can we really do um, to address the kind of issues you, you are pointing at, given the power structures that you have referred to, given the uh, uh, political economy uh, um, of, of some of the countries, given the fragilities um, of some of the governments, given the political realities that, that we see? So what is it you would do, really? Um, and have, keeping in mind that most of these policies are national policies. I mean, this has to come from the countries. It's not the EBRD that's going to sort of implement the education system and change the education system in Hungary, for example. Yeah? So, so what is it that, that you think needs to be done in, in those countries, really? Thank you very much. It's okay. Uh, I, I probably can answer everything okay. in the end. Well, excellent. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, Only your that. Yeah. Yeah. I uh, also would like to congratulate excellent report, as usual, with CDRD reports. I have one question and one uh, comment. Question relates to inequality of opportunities, uh, particularly to education. Uh, the question, uh, my question relates to the role of the specific education funding model of tertiary education in many post-communist countries where we have something which I personally call illusion of freedom education, 
for various historical political reasons, uh, constitution or legislation support idea of free education, but because resources are limited, uh, this uh, can only cover limited number of students, and usually via the mechanism of competition, performance competition goes to kids from well, better off families, while kids from uh, worse uh, of families, they, they must pay for education, either in private universities, which most of them is a very doubtful quality, or in external courses of state universities, also worse quality. And from my perspective, this is a very strong mechanism to, uh, which uh, deepen inequalities. What is your judgment on this? And second, this rather observation, it came out in your um, presentation, uh, and also it came out in Katarina comments, this is the ethnicity. We have, of course, problem of inherited multi-ethnicity. Roma mm -hmm. case is excellent, but I think it's also a lot of more in countries which are multi-ethnic. But we'll probably will have more because of migration, of legal and illegal migration, migration caused by, by, by conflicts, refugee, but also of economic needs, because all, uh, at least in Europe itself, all this tra transition, also non-transition societies are shrinking in terms of population need. And this is, as we know, creates a lot of tension. And uh, we have more, less legal migration, more illegal uh, migration, it creates even more various kinds of inequalities in tension. So is what is your take on this? Thank you very much. A lady here in the second row, yes. Hi, Nicola Colson from the European... Nicola Colson from the European Commission. Uh, two quick questions, if I may. Um, one is that uh, looking ahead in terms of the next 25 years of transition, uh, we've heard a lot in other contexts about how uh, industry and jobs and services are going to be increasingly digitised and access to the right kind of skills and education are going to be critical for avoiding having that exacerbate inequalities further. So do we have any sense of how much is being prepared to manage the impact of that, or if you know, is, are we going to see all of those trends be flipped back on their head by that? Um, and my second is a broader comment around: I'm still hearing conversation around uh, wealth creation and then sort of social redistribution systems, and yet I'm hearing in other places the suggestion that we should talk about pre-distribution, that actually the systems themselves need to create inclusive growth rather than growth for inclusion. And I'm just wondering if there are any examples of that thinking going on in, in the regions. Interesting question. In this round, before I let Sergey answer a few of those, and I'll take a question from the lady in the third row. Thank you very much. Tatiana Moravska, University of Latvia. Yes, it's working. It works? Yeah. 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 Yes, okay. Um, thank you very much for the presentation for all panelists for organizing this extremely important uh, discussion and uh, special thanks for the transition report because this would be, this is very helpful. Um, I work in academia and it's uh, very difficult for me now to talk to my students about transition period and that might be also linked to one of my questions because I was really attracted by the notion of happiness. 
we discussed the transition is over since we joined countries of Central Eastern Europe, the European Union. So we uh, discussed this uh, inequality and gap in income. But this is a very interesting concept of gap in happiness. Since I work with young people, uh, they are sometimes happy, they are sometimes not happy, it depends. But uh, I have my students from all over the world, including, for example, Uzbekistan, Russia, or advanced economies. And uh, Uzbekistan students are coming to the European Union to get diploma. They are happy. They don't speak English. They don't speak Russian. But they are happy because probably there are opportunities. Maybe this is the reason. Because my question is, what is behind happiness? What are the reasons of being happy? They don't know what they don't know. When I talk to students about transition, they have no knowledge. They don't know Leszek Balcerowicz. They don't know <laughs> such notions <laughs> and, and his reforms. I mean, this the social experiment seems to be over. But to talk to young people about Washington consensus related issues, it just you have to give a set of, uh, of block of lectures and new course. That's why I thank you very much for this report. It will help me to talk to students. Thank you. Fundamental question. Now, before we go to other questions, do you want to? Yes. Let me. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yes. Oh, I, I, I can use this mic. So uh, let, me, let me answer all the questions, but in no specific order. So Tatiana's question. Um, that's uh, too big. I cannot uh, tell you how to make people happy. Uh, people do judge uh, what they get by a certain system of aspirations and beliefs. So if you come from a background where aspirations are not very high, you are m more likely to be happy. Now, talking about uh, age profile of happiness, there is a very robust finding, especially in non-transition countries, which is people, when they're 16 or 18, are very happy. And then every year they become less and less happy. <laughs> and, uh, and then they become less and less happy until they're 35 or 40. In transition countries, more like 45 or 50. And then happiness starts to increase. Now, in some transition countries, happiness never starts to increase. I'm very happy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, so this is this middle age crisis. So, this is, uh, so your students may be not happy because they just discovered that happiness starts, started to come down. So tell them that uh, around 35 or 40, life will get better. <laughs> so on, uh, uh, I, would like, uh, I would like now to, uh, to talk uh, about issues raised by Heather and uh, Katarina. So on health uh, issues, yes, access to public services was a crucial part of this one centimeter issue. Uh, we actually tried to look at incomes only, and we showed that uh, part of this one centimeter effect is explained by incomes. But part apparently is explained by other factors, stress, yeah. and also access to public services, including, including health. Now, on uh, Roma, we actually have a box on Roma. We have a couple of pages on Roma. We use some of the data in this survey. But of course, the problem is that this survey only covers <coughs> Roma, which are relatively included. Yeah. Right? So the really excluded Roma are not there. And so we use our data sets, and we show that in uh, best countries, uh, Roma, 30% of Roma don't finish secondary education. In worst countries, 7% finish yeah. secondary education. I fully agree it's a scary, scary uh, subject, which unfortunately is not covered by uh, uh, our survey because we don't have the right instrument. Yeah. And uh, I agree with Marek, we need to work more on those issues. We need to survey illegal immigrants. We need to survey refugees. We'll do that. We actually we have fundraise now. and. Uh, 
and uh, we'll work more on, on uh, refugee camps and uh, we'll work more on refugees in Jordan and Turkey. And our bank has committed uh, almost a billion euros uh, to uh, carry out uh, projects uh, for, uh, for refugee, re receiving refugee hosting countries. So we, uh, we will do some, some uh, relevant research for this. On feelings and emotions. Actually, we do fossil research on feelings and emotions. So the way it works is your, your system of beliefs is formed when you're 18 to 25 years old. So if your height is formed by your couple of first couple of years of your life, uh, beliefs are formed later. And so we actually look at people who go through transition where they're 18 to 25 years uh, old, and we find almost no effect, except these people are more likely to support markets and democracy. So you can see the repercussions of that excitement 25 years ago about markets and democracy. So we do, we, we do a bit of that. On, um, on uh, Jolt's questions about, about uh, recent crisis, so we do have a, a second round of the survey done in 2010, which talks a lot about impact of that crisis on happiness, on, on consumption, on things like that. And indeed, we find it was a very, very painful experience. This time around, we work on Greece. Uh, not in this report, but in another publication which will be published next week. Uh, that's a report on life and transition survey per se. There is a chapter on Greece. And we show that crisis in Greece was uh, unfortunately very inclusive. 92% of Greeks have been affected by crisis. Half of them reduced uh, consumption of necessities, not just luxuries, but necessities. So we are talking about major thing. When we call it internal devaluation, we are trying kidding ourselves, uh, trying to kid ourselves. It's, it's a major crisis which has huge repercussions, which of course result in political implications. Too. So I fully agree with that. On efficiency of redistribution, I, I, I think this is, this is a very good point. And uh, when we talk to Ukrainian counterparts, we fully support their decision, for example, to move from energy subsidies, which are for everybody, to energy subsidies, which are for the poor. Yeah. Because if, if you have energy subsidies, electricity subsidies for everybody, people with bigger apartments yeah. have bigger subsidies. Mm -hmm. yeah. That sounds great. Uh, so this is not what efficient redistribution is. On uh, structure of cuts, this is a very, very good point. All people vote. So it's, uh, and of course, it's also fair that people who are no longer going to be able to take care of themselves, uh, should also be protected. This is a very important debate when, when we design our inclusion strategy and think about whether we need to undertake projects which promote career opportunities of the young or of the women or of uh, people living in disadvantaged regions or of the old or of ethnic minorities. We exactly think about those issues. And currently we concentrate on young women and disadvantaged regions, but we'll probably do more on ethnicities and on old. But as you rightly said, in many countries, old are politically powerful and are not, uh, not easily expropriated. So um, on uh, Guntram's issues, yes, uh, urban-rural divide is large, but it turns out that parental background is more important and gender is more important. And probably the reason is people do move from rural to urban. Bratislava is doing well. Moscow is not anymore, but it used to be richer than Italy or Spain. Uh, and, uh, uh, but then in Moscow, nobody was born in Moscow. People born in Moscow now live in New York, right? Or in London. So people who live in Moscow now are people who are born outside of Moscow. So this is, this is how it works. So uh, in that sense, the equality of opportunity is there. Uh, 
uh, even though inequality of income may be actually higher. So on policy advice, going back uh, 25 years, Gantram's big question, I think we are answering this question now in Ukraine. So in Ukraine, we are back to the drawing table. Ukraine has done uh, very little reform in the last 25 years. So we are now talking about these issues. Uh, there are many challenges, and we are exactly addressing those issues. And this is one of the lessons. We say, yeah. read this report and think about compensating the poor. And some of that they're doing and doing reasonably well. Thinking about those targeted subsidies, for example, I think, I think it's uh, very important. One of the things is, of course, oligarchs. And the big issue is to make sure that everybody knows that the government is taking care of public interest, not oligarchic interest. When you address specific deals, specific uh, transactions, specific sectors, specific regulators, regulations, so the public should know that government is not corrupt. This is something where many countries of operation did not succeed. They completely failed this test. But I would say that governance and inclusion, and then things related to uh, competition policy and so on. Um, so not to create oligarchs. But I also would like to say that preserving democracy is very important. Whenever people say we need to have some kind of benevolent dictator to push through the reforms, I think our region teaches a very clear lesson. We have half of the region which is reasonably democratic and reasonably competitive, like market-based economy. And then we have half of the region which is less democratic and more like chronic capitalist. And correlation is very, very clear. So the benevolent dictators are not benevolent after all. They take care of themselves and their cronies. So on Marek's question about education system, yes, uh, access to high quality education is very unequal. It's very hard to measure in this data. But what we also find in this data, even though uh, some of education institutions are pretty bad, still on average, education pays off. So we know that uh, the expansion of education has been unprecedented in, in those countries of operation. Access to education has improved. Most of this education is bad. And yet, people with higher education in those countries get 30% more uh, in terms of wages. And this is the number you would find in many Western European countries. So it's not that bad. So it does pay off. So in that sense, it's, it may not be completely free. It may not be high quality, but uh, uh, still it works. Uh, on the quality of opportunity, of course, student loans. Student loans are a good solution. Uh, you make people pay, and you make sure that uh, poor people get scholarships, and uh, people who will benefit from the education will be able to borrow and pay later. And I think it's, it's a solution which, uh, which uh, we would like to advocate everywhere. And uh, on predistribution and equal opportunity, the Nicolas uh, uh, question, I think you go back to Joel's slides and he shows UK, US here, Sweden, Norway here. So you can actually learn some lessons from Nordic countries. Access to uh, good education for everybody, uh, redistribution, predistribution, this is, uh, this is something that works at least partially. On digitalization, I think uh, the only answer is the same, education. Uh, I think we need to provide everybody with good skills. Now, can we make a forecast about what's going to happen in 25 years? It's very, very hard. I only have one bit of uh, forecast for you. will be this room, presenting transition report 2041. <laughs> <laughs> will you and I be doing that? Uh, no, we institutionally. Okay, institutional. right. Institutional. <laughs> <laughs> Katarina, I think you wanted to have a quick intervention here. So. Just, uh, just very quickly on uh, some of the reaction a little bit. 
Uh, I'm not sure I would go as far as calling Balcerovic, Miklos, etc. a social experiment. I, I think that uh, it's actually been a little more successful than that uh, title that uh, you ascribed to it. Uh, even all, with all the flaws that we, we discussed. Uh, on Gurkram, uh, you're absolutely right. Inside the EU, a lot of the policies that would address inequality are national policies. Uh, it's, uh, it's difficult uh, sometimes through the very soft acquis to, to influence them. But representing the outside of the, outside of the EU, certainly for the, for the neighborhood and for the um, uh, enlargement space uh, around the EU, we do have a much sort of greater normative uh, ability uh, together with our partners, uh, EBRD, the World Bank, and, and others, IMF, in, in shaping the policy. So I'm not giving up. I actually think that uh, we will take a lot of lessons from this and uh, look forward to working with you on that. But actually, we're doing a lot more in that arena of EBRD. I mean, that policy systemic reform is, is crucial to us going forward. Right. And the... Um, uh, one point on the inclusive, the pre-distribution, the one thing, and I think it's, it's very much true about the Roma I mentioned and others, but the one issue, and I think that's where we've gotten it not quite right collectively, is everybody talks about education, but education as if it was a con you know, just a continuum with the same value. There are studies, there is robust research and evidence that investment in early childhood education pays much, much more than later in life. And yeah. if I look even at the EU, small funding for education, it's, it's tilted towards the much lower return uh, side of the spectrum. So I think that's one lesson that uh, we should take, and which very much goes to the pre-distribution uh, uh, side. And the last point, I'm delighted, Sergey, we'll work together on Roma. Uh, and I take I your point. I say we will work together on Roma. <laughs> no, but I take your point yes, on the. We, I will take, we will do research. I take your point <laughs> on the data. Yeah. And in yeah. 2011, yeah. Uh, we did actually a, a survey of the marginalized yeah. Roma with yeah. booster samples, yeah. et cetera. Yeah. And we are currently conducting UNDP and the World Bank with us uh, yeah. a survey in the Western Balkans yeah. On, yeah. on Roma. So. Looking Actually, right now we, we work on uh, immigrants uh, passing uh, from uh, North Africa through West Balkans to Europe. So we're actually studying the routes and uh, sending researchers to talk to, right. to some people that otherwise would not be reached by service. Yeah. I have three quick uh, ideas for you okay. for transition reports between now and, and the one in 2041. <laughs> so, um, because get ahead of the curve. The ABRD's fantastic advantage over many other institutions is the ability to produce these kinds of report, reports with longitudinal data, but which can also take deep dives into complex policy issues. Complex policy issues are no longer popular in politics. We are in <laughs> post-policy politics. But that's why it's all the more important that IFIs actually do this kind of research. So I'd suggest three areas for deeper dives. One is actually to go into the drivers of inequality. You've now got this great report. Mm -hmm. So go into um, the issues like gender and ethnicity, which nobody has dared to touch before in this kind of a report. And particularly, I think, the point made by, by Marek Dombrovsky about migration. 
that this is a region, the EBRD region, um, they've ex experienced, countries have experienced migration to different degrees, but it's having a massive political impact, even in countries which still have quite low levels of migration. And the others with much higher, for example, Jordan and Lebanon, um, are, are going to experience a lot more political turmoil and social disruption. Um, and as you were pointing out, legal migration and uh, controlled and managed migration are, are really key to this. So this is something very important for, for the future development of these economies. Second thing is the relationship between democracy and economic performance, which, which the EBRD has, has worked on different aspects of it, but particularly the issue of state capture where the capture of the state by specific economic interests has a dramatic effect. It's not just benevolent dictators. It's also ones where there's semi-competition, where there's hybrids of competition and, and captured state. Um, that's really, really key to, to longer term. And finally, if there had not been an EBRD transition report on one issue between, before 2041, this organization would be considered completely moribund. And that is on climate change and the shift to the low-carbon economy, because this is going to have a dramatic impact in the next 20 years on many of these countries, particularly in the south, the more southern they are, but also the east, to desertification, aridification, Central Asia, it's already happening. And I think this actually relates to the pre-distribution question that Nicola Colson asked, because if the system is not able to, to create inclusive growth and a shift to the low-carbon economy, then the system is, is failing, because that's the where all of these countries are going to have to go. So is it a matter of a sudden disjuncture where you drift along, continuing to go in the same fossil fuel-dependent way, and then suddenly a dramatic shift? Shift, or is it a managed transition um, to a different kind of economy? Um, so that's something the EBRD is, I would suggest, very well qualified to go into. We did a massive report in 2011 on, on this, but maybe <laughs> it's time for another, yeah. another mm. massive report. Uh, Jean, would you like, do you want to say anything at all uh, before we draw to your conclusion? Yes, maybe you should try that one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let, let me try, try this one, yeah. if, it, if it works. Now, on, on, on a point that, that uh, Serge has raised on, on the vote, political implications and votes against, against reforms, so I think what would be you know, interesting to, to see, maybe it was in some of your earlier transition reports, but if not, you, you, you may look at, so how the, the political choices of these countries are influenced by social developments. You know, I mean, I can name my own country, Hungary, or we can name, name Poland, you know, there's the two countries which look, you know, you know, quite okay. Uh, yet, what we see is that that you know somehow a very sometimes a very right wing, sometimes some some populist ideas are, are very popular. Sometimes anti-immigration policies uh, and rhetoric are, are extremely popular. And and you know, uncovering issues, what what driving uh, you know those you know political shifts in in these countries that would be interesting. And just let me mention another point, which was also also in our report that that uh, they looked at some determinants of the Brexit vote, so who voted for, for leave and who didn't vote for leave. And quite interestingly, we found that if you control for many indicators, immigration was not a statistically significant variable. So we talked about a lot of immigration, what impact it may have. Uh, uh, at best, you know, if you just do a simple you know, bilateral correlation, then those regions where there are more immigrants, they tended to vote more for remain. But what came out from my research very clearly is that income inequality played a very significant role. So in those regions in the, within the United Kingdom, which are more unequal, they tended to vote for leave, even if you control for age, education, geography, whatsoever, income. And I think, indeed, it does suggest that social developments, poverty, and inequality can also have major political consequences. 
So you know, exploring what are these consequences also in the EBRD region, I think would be a very interesting study. Thank you very much. I think we're going to have to draw it to a close as we're over our lot of time. I'd like to thank Sergey, our panel, very much indeed. Sorry we couldn't have time. We could have gone on all afternoon, I suspect, with some interesting points. Uh, Bruegel, I'd like to thank again very much for hosting us. Uh, but thank you also to all of you for taking part. <laughs>